Chapter 1. Economics and Economic Disciplines Section 1. Definition of Economics Economics is the study of the management and productive use of scarce resources with alternative uses. The word economics is derived from the Greek word oikonomia, meaning the management of a household, husbandry or thrift. This word is itself formed from the combination of two other Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and nemo, meaning to distribute or to manage, and oikonomos was the manager of a household or estate, a steward or administrator. Economics, therefore, deals with the stewardship of scarce resources. Section 2. Various kinds of economic study. Economists today generally distinguish between various kinds of economic study. There are textbooks dealing with subjects such as macroeconomics, microeconomics, development economics, econometrics, positive economics, normative economics. International trade, though often considered as part of macroeconomics, also tends to be treated in a somewhat specialist way, as if it constituted a form of economic activity governed by principles quite different from those of domestic trade. Macroeconomics is concerned with an overall view of the economy and therefore deals with economic activities in terms of large aggregates, for example, total production, total employment, total investment, total consumption, savings and investment, the general level of prices and wages, inflation, economic growth, and problems relating to international trade, such as an unfavourable balance of trade. The purpose of macroeconomic theory, according to Selden and Penance, is, quote, to study systematically the influences that determine the level of national income and other aggregates and the level of employable resources, end quote. Macroeconomic theory plays a large part in the formulation of government economic policy and tends to inform much of the thinking done by development economists devising models for investment and economic growth in underdeveloped countries. Microeconomics, by contrast, studies the economic actions of individuals and particular groups of individuals, particular firms and businesses, the fluctuation in prices between various goods and services, and the factors determining the allocation of resources to particular industries. Its purpose is to analyse and understand the minutiae of economic activity that generate the wealth and resources of the nation. Development economics studies the economies of underdeveloped countries such as third world nations whose populations generally have been unable to raise themselves out of a state of subsistence living, semi-starvation and general underutilization of available economic resources. Development economies analyse such economies and attempt to construct development models that will, usually with the help of international aid programmes, promote economic growth and social improvement. The purpose of this is to bring these backward nations into line with Western standards of living and welfare. In spite of its being considered an aspect of economics, development economics has far more to do with the international politics of aid, which properly has little relevance to economics as such, and is more correctly an aspect of charity. Econometrics, writes Seldon and Penance, is, quote, the branch of economics in which economic theory Mathematics and statistics are fused in the analysis of numerical data. Econometrics 
presents economic theories in a form in which they can be tested statistically against observed events. It relies, therefore, on the compilation and analysis of economic statistics. Econometrics plays a significant role in the testing of modern macroeconomic theory. Positive economics. Positive economics purports to treat the subject as a science and attempts to discover and analyze the, quote, facts, end quote, of economic phenomena, what is in contrast to normative economics, for example, welfare economics, which attempts to determine what ought to be and therefore deals with value judgments. Section 3. Problems with the definition of some economic disciplines. These distinctions can be misleading since they really only represent the abstraction of particular aspects of economic phenomena from the complex reality of human action and cannot be pushed too far without distorting one's understanding of the nature of economic activity. Such abstractions are valid and useful to the extent that they enable us to understand the relation between certain economic phenomena and thereby help to provide us with a better understanding of the subject as a whole. However, when this qualification is not borne in mind and the limitations of such abstractions are not given sufficient attention, it is often assumed that these different areas of economic study have a quasi-autonomous character. It is then not infrequently claimed that the particular circumstances with which a field of study is concerned, for example, third world countries, necessitate the modification of fundamental principles of economic activity as these apply to the particular conditions under consideration. This can, and often does, lead to confusion and to the formulation by politicians of economic policy that cannot achieve its aim and that often produces, in the event, the very opposite of what it is intended to accomplish. The confusion resulting from the abuse of these distinctions can readily be observed in the frequent disputes between left and right-wing political parties in Britain over the outcome of government economic policy. The economic theoreticians of each party disagree not only about the practical outcome of each other's policies, but also about the economic realities on which their policies are based. Each side is committed to models constructed in terms of those aspects of economic life that they prioritise and wish to see reformed, and each side refuses to acknowledge that their economic policies are essentially based on abstract models operating in terms of quasi-autonomous aggregates that do not adequately represent the concrete factors prevailing in the real economy. In short, in their eagerness to promote the interests of those sectors of society from which they believe they derive their mandate, politicians constantly fail to take account of the whole picture. When the economic policies of the party and government have run their course and economic reality catches up with politics, the result is economic depression, inflation, unemployment, etc. The opposition party then gains power, usually on the ticket of solving all the problems created by the previous government's policies, and simply inverts the problem by stressing different, but equally artificial answers based on a distortion of economic realities. The result is that the economy plunges headlong into another crisis. Consequently, the economic pendulum swings back and forth with ever more damaging results for those who have to live in the real world. We shall now look a little more closely at some of the problems arising from the abuse of these 
artificial distinctions and definitions. Section 4. Development Economics Development economists often assume that the economies of many third world societies are not able to sustain economic growth and social amelioration on the basis of the same economic principles that led to the rise of Western economies over the past 400 years. Because of the conditions prevailing in these societies, it is thought that their economies operate in terms of economic principles that are essentially different from those relevant to developed economies. Societies exhibiting these special economic conditions are deemed to require help from the first world, usually in the form of aid to governments to enable them to plan the growth of their economies. Yet, after many years of special aid programs on a massive scale, these societies are still languishing in poverty, starvation and disease. India is a good example. Between 1951 and 1959, India received foreign aid worth £580 million from the USA, £65 million from the UK, £65 million from Canada and £72 million from Germany. Yet, from 1957 to 1959, there were acute and widespread food shortages. In 1958 to 1959, weather conditions were exceptionally good from the agricultural point of view, but there were still food riots. Under British rule, however, India had been a net exporter of food. On the other hand, similar societies that have adopted the same basic principles of economic organisation that led to the rise of Western economies have flourished and begun to challenge Western economies in many industries, for example, Malaysia, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Singapore, South Korea and Taiwan. In fact, as P.T. Bauer has shown, the most that foreign aid can do for third world nations in terms of development and growth of the economy is equivalent only to offsetting the costs of borrowing, since if development programs are economically viable, they will be funded readily by private enterprise and commercial loans from abroad. At worst, however, aid can lead to the fossilization of government economic policies that create disinvestment and thus cripple industry. This is because, by the very nature of the case, aid tends to be offered to nations whose governments have already demonstrated their inability to safeguard the social conditions necessary for economic growth and social amelioration. There are, in particular, a number of serious problems arising from government-to-government aid programs based on models that do not require the creation of the same economic conditions that led to economic prosperity in the developed world. A. Such aid primarily supports governments and the policies those governments choose to pursue, not the poor who may not benefit at all from these policies. P.T. Bauer points out that, quote, much spending undertaken or directed by government and termed investment does not represent capital formation on any sensible interpretation, but is merely spending on various activities and projects deemed useful to the government and its agents. And aid brings about a host of repercussions which adversely affect the basic determinants of development and are likely far to outweigh any benefit from aid. Usually countries receiving aid are poor precisely because the policies pursued by their governments create economic impoverishment. Aid given to such governments tends to increase governmental power and control over society and thus helps to prolong the very problem it is ostensibly aimed at eliminating 
by helping to reinforce the kinds of policies that created the problem in the first place. Many third world governments have persecuted some of the most productive groups in their societies. Communist governments in the third world nations, for example, which are hostile to the idea of private capital accumulation because it is considered a, quote, capitalist, unquote, way of life, tend to punish prudent economic activity, often very severely. Under the Mengistu government in Ethiopia, saving money from the sale of the proceeds of past harvests and investing it in future food production was called, quote, capitalist accumulation, end quote, and made a, quote, crime against the people, end quote. Earning a living by transporting food to districts where it was needed was considered, quote, exploitation, unquote, and was punished by confiscation, imprisonment, and even execution. Saving food from good harvests for droughts and bad seasons has also been punished with mass executions. Aid given to such governments does nothing to benefit the poor who are denied the economic means necessary to improve their conditions by the government and helps to promote the kind of economic policy that have led to the decline of these economies in the first place. Aid in such cases actually helps to prolong the misery of such economically impoverished nations and helps to create the desperate economic conditions that are then deemed by development economists to necessitate further injections of aid. B. Aid given to government also fosters the adoption of political rather than economic means of social amelioration since it provides immediate resources for short-term social amelioration in the form of state subsidies, grants and welfare, but without requiring the fundamental reforms necessary to sustain economic growth in the long term. This leads to the increasing politicisation of life, which encourages people to divert their time, resources and energy away from productive economic activity towards securing favourable treatment from government, for example, state subsidies, the granting of licences and monopolies, imposition of tariffs on imports that compete with domestic industries, discriminatory tax concessions, all of which have detrimental effects on the economy. P.T. Bauer states the problem clearly. Quote, Foreign aid has thus done much to politicise life in the third world, and when social and economic life is extensively politicised, who has the power becomes supremely important, sometimes a matter of life and death. Witness Burundi, Kampuchea, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, Tanzania, Uganda, Vietnam and Zaire, among countries whose governments have received substantial Western aid. In such conditions, people at large, especially those who are alert and ambitious, become much concerned with what happens in politics and in public administration as decisions taken there come crucially to affect their livelihood and even threaten their physical destruction. People divert their resources and attention from productive economic activity into other areas, such as trying to forecast political developments, placating or bribing politicians and civil servants, operating or evading controls. They are induced or even forced into these activities in order either to protect themselves from the all-important decisions of the rulers or, where possible, to benefit from them. This direction of people's activities and resources must damage the economic performance and development of a society, since they depend crucially on the deployment of people's human, financial and physical resources. End quote. Thus, foreign aid given to third world governments 
Because it provides much of the funding necessary to affect this politicization of life, initiates, or at least helps to sustain, a cycle of events that is extremely damaging to the whole economy and hence to real economic growth and social amelioration in the long term for the majority of the population. The effects of aid, when misdirected in this way, are also often detrimental to those minorities and groups that do not have the political muscle to secure favourable treatment by the government in office. Those with access to political power use that power to better their own conditions by granting favourable concessions, privileged status and access to government funds for themselves, for their own class, ethnic group or tribe, and by penalising and disadvantaging other groups, for example by restricting opportunities for skilled work and reserving entrance into monopoly trades for members of the privileged groups. Those groups that are not able to control the policy and machinery of state, which are often the most economically productive groups in society, are disadvantaged and become second-class citizens. Foreign aid given to third-world governments, since it helps to provide the funding necessary for such policies to be pursued, is essentially irrational from an economic point of view and therefore detrimental to economic growth and social amelioration in the long term. For the same reason, it helps to institutionalise prejudice and injustice. Foreign aid, therefore, can, and often does, promote economic backwardness. Aid given to governments often finances policies that frustrate the efforts of many to improve their social conditions. It also leads many to pursue political measures as a means of social amelioration when, in the absence of such politicised aid, they would be forced back upon economic measures to better their conditions which would be more desirable and able to produce the required long-term results. The political road to social amelioration is thus not only economically irrational, but, from the human point of view, cruel, since it cannot be sustained when the aid runs out and tends to discourage the kind of real economic reform needed to create the conditions necessary for the development of a productive economy that would sustain long-term social amelioration. Furthermore, aid given to governments that pursue such policies tends to strengthen and consolidate their hold over society and free up other resources for irrelevant and unnecessary prestige and showpiece projects and even for the machinery of oppression. A good example of this latter point was the Mengistu regime in Ethiopia, which, whilst most of the rural population was in the grip of severe starvation and receiving massive aid from the First World, spent 35 million on a colour television system for its capital and millions more on a whiskey gala. At the same time, it conducted a civil war in 12 of the country's 14 provinces. Section 5. Macroeconomics and Microeconomics A similar kind of distortion of economic reality can occur when macroeconomic theory is divorced from consideration of the concrete everyday economic decisions and actions taken by people on the microeconomic level. For instance, we are told by Selden and Penance that, quote, macroeconomics has its own rules because aggregate economic behaviour does not compare to the total of individual activities, end quote. This statement shows a confused understanding of economic reality. It is to say that the whole is not the sum of its parts. The economy, however, is precisely the sum of all individual economic activities. 
even taking account of the fact that the economic actions of individual people, firms and businesses are often influenced and regulated by government policy, aggregate economic behaviour must compare with the total of individual economic actions. Aggregate economic behaviour is the total of individual economic actions. Such an artificial dichotomy between macroeconomics and microeconomics is confused and misleading. Besides, it is an almost meaningless use of language to say that aggregate economic behaviour does not compare with the sum total of individual economic activities. The latter phrase is simply another way of defining aggregate economic behaviour. Macroeconomic models developed on the basis of such a fallacy can only lead to economic delusion. When such models are adopted by governments as a rationale for the formulation of policy aimed at controlling the economy in terms of government plans for national aggregates, they invariably lead to serious problems for many of the individuals, firms and industries that comprise the economy. And it is the latter that generate the wealth and resources for economic growth, not government policy, however much politicians would like us to believe otherwise. Such a confused understanding of economic reality lies at the root of many of the problems faced by the economies of both developed and underdeveloped nations today. To the extent that government economic policy is informed by such spurious macroeconomic notions, it is simply out of touch with reality. The result is economic schizophrenia and, in the end, ruin for the economy. The use of macroeconomic theory increased after the publication of John Maynard Keynes's General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money in 1936. Keynes, in effect, inverted the economically sound procedure of basing theory concerning the behaviour of economic aggregates on a thorough analysis and understanding of microeconomic factors. Instead, he made microeconomics dependent on macroeconomic theory. Macroeconomics has gained importance with the rise of government regulation and control of the economy since, ostensibly, it is able to provide theoretical justification for such controls. However, government macroeconomic policy is usually achieved at the expense of the individuals, firms and businesses operating on the microeconomic level who have to make a profit or perhaps even just survive while juggling the regulations avoiding the pitfalls and suffering the handicaps and penalties thrown in their way by politicians seeking to manipulate the economy for political ends and taking their advice from tenured academics and economic gurus sitting in ivory towers. When government macroeconomic theory and policy are seriously out of touch with the realities prevailing on the microeconomic level, as they usually are to varying degrees, the result is the business cycle, that is, the constant swing between booms, periods of high inflation, easy credit and the growth of a debt-based economy, imprudent investment, excessive and unsustainable business expansion and often wild speculation and slumps, periods of recession, widespread business failures, bankruptcy, high levels of unemployment and the decline of standards of living generally. The problem with this kind of macroeconomic theory is that it abstracts general concepts such as the level of prices and total employment from the concrete microeconomic realities upon which they rest and assumes that they are controllable by governments in such a way that the knock-on effects of such controls on the microeconomic level 
can be contained and channeled to the desired ends. But this fails to take account of the fact that aggregate economic activity is a result of millions of individuals making subjective evaluations of the economic choices before them in accordance with their own particular needs and desires. In order to control the aggregate economy successfully, therefore, the government would have to be able to understand the motives, priorities and intentions of the whole population and predict people's reactions when faced with a series of possible, but as yet unrealised, economic conditions. There is, quite obviously, no way that such information can be made available to a central authority directing the economy, and even if it could, it would be impossible for finite human beings to make sense of it, so vast would be the task. In other words, it would require omniscience. Government control of the economy, therefore, seldom produces the desired results because government is, to a large extent, unable to control the knock-on effects of its policies on the microeconomic level, and this leads to an aggregate economic situation that does not correspond to that desired by government and so often forecast by macroeconomic theory. It is misleading, however, to say that the discrepancy between the effects produced by macroeconomic government policy on the microeconomic level and the forecasts of macroeconomic theory is because macroeconomics has its own rules. The reason for the discrepancies between macroeconomic theory and microeconomic reality is the fact that the former is quite simply out of touch with the realities of behaviour in the real economy, that is, the economy generated by the millions of subjective decisions made by individual people, firms and businesses as they respond to new choices and economic conditions, many of which, because they are the result of government initiatives geared to political objectives, may lead to actions that are irrational from an economic point of view. Such actions are unforeseeable and therefore not susceptible to analysis by macroeconomic theory. In this situation, the only course government can take that would lead to greater economic rationalisation and hence economic growth is one in which it increasingly withdraws from regulating the economy, thereby freeing it from the restraints and disincentives that control and regulation inevitably put in the way of individual economic activity. Macroeconomic theory assumes that the economic principles and rules relevant to economic aggregates are different from those relevant to individual economic activity. When economic aggregates are subject to this kind of analysis, the concept of the economy takes on a quasi-autonomous character and it is thought that this aggregate economy can then be controlled and manipulated successfully without creating confusion and conflict on the microeconomic level. But this is a false assumption since the macroeconomic situation, that is, total employment, total investment, the general level of prices, etc., is a result of the combination of all the individual employments, investments and prices determined by the factors analysed in microeconomics. Donald A. Hay, in his book Economics Today, A Christian Critique, provides a typical example of the kinds of conclusions reached by economists working in terms of this false dichotomy between microeconomics and macroeconomics. In arguing against the monstrous contention that inflation of the money supply by the government affects a redistribution of wealth within the economy 
that is basically immoral, he concludes that, quote, It is unexpected inflation which can have redistributional effects. Fully anticipated inflation cannot, end quote. But, claims Hay, since according to monetarist theory, inflation is fully anticipated, quote, monetary policy has no real effects on the economy, end quote. Our concern here is not with Hay's arguments against monetarist theory and whether its claim concerning the immorality of inflation is valid or not, though I believe it is valid, but with the fact that the author, a tutor in economics at Oxford University, considers that monetary policy, for example, aggregate growth in the money supply, has no real effects on the economy. Hay assumes that if it is known that there will be inflation, manufacturers and suppliers will simply put prices up accordingly. He writes, quote, In practice, if they tender for contracts, they will adjust the terms under which they are willing to supply. End quote. This shows a lack of understanding of how the economy works on the microeconomic level, particularly of how economic actors in the real world have to tender for contracts at competitive rates. Even if manufacturers could anticipate the effects of inflation correctly in the way that Hay assumes, which has not been proved, it by no means follows that they can adjust their costs accordingly. Many will be competing for contracts against the very groups that have been unfairly advantaged by the inflation through being in receipt of, for instance, government subsidies or cheap loans that enable them to tender at far more competitive prices than those not benefiting from the newly created money. This means that even if those firms not in receipt of government grants or cheap loans are aware of the effects of inflation, they cannot compete and put up their prices, but can only compete by not putting their prices up or by not putting them up in line with inflation. Perhaps it would be better if academics who are inclined to make such sweeping claims were to try earning a living under such conditions before they glibly brush aside the plight of many of the firms and businesses that have to compete against those who receive the newly created money. Being able to anticipate inflation and being able to avoid its consequences are two very different things. A basic distinction one would have expected a lecturer in economics at Oxford University to have appreciated. Such reasoning is naive and economically unsound. He contends that evidence of the redistributive effects of inflation is generally unsubstantial. He does, however, consider that those on welfare benefits and low-income groups may be affected. Since he thinks that inflation does not affect the economy, this implies that the spending power of such groups is irrelevant for the economy, which is far from being true. Even here, however, those considered to be affected by inflation are arbitrarily confined to a narrow income group. This assumption is quite false. On the contrary, inflation affects all individuals and groups that do not have the political muscle to secure the benefits of inflation, that is to say, to ensure that they are the ones who receive the newly created money. Those who are members of groups that can bargain successfully for pay increases commensurate with inflation, for example, labour and professional unions, are able to benefit at the expense of those who do not have the power to command increases in pay, either personally or through the representation necessary to bargain with the government. This includes many of those self-employed people and small businesses that have to compete against industries and firms subsidised by inflation. 
The fact that these people may be quite aware of what inflation is doing to their income does not help in any way to compensate for the loss of purchasing power that they have to bear as a result of inflation. The knock-on effects of inflation affect a great many such people who are vital economic actors and upon whom the welfare of the economy depends every bit as much as those with bargaining power and political influence and who have, as a proportion of the workforce, increased considerably since the early 1970s. By analysing economic phenomena in this way, without taking care to stress the limitations of such an abstract approach, economists create confusion and mislead politicians into thinking they can manipulate the macroeconomic factors for their own ends without throwing into confusion the factors involved on the microeconomic level, which are responsible for real economic behaviour and hence economic growth and decline. In other words, it gives them leave to manipulate the economy as if overall economic performance can be determined from above by political policy. Such control from above affects the economy greatly, but seldom for the good, since it rarely produces the anticipated results. The effect of policies based on this artificial distinction between macroeconomics and microeconomics and the construction of aggregate models that do not adequately relate to the concrete economic circumstances under which the economy works is that the economy runs into difficulties and becomes even more difficult to control by political fiat. A graphic illustration of this last point on the 16th of September 1992, quote, Black Wednesday, unquote, as it was subsequently called, when Sterling plunged into a nosedive on the currency markets, and all attempts by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Norman Lamont, to stop its decline by the use of draconian measures, failed miserably. The Bank of England announced a minimum lending rate of 12%. This had the desired effect of pushing up the commercial bank's base rates accordingly, and it was also announced on the same day that interest rates would rise another 3% on the following day. These measures proved useless against the real economy, however, since the exchange value of sterling continued to fall below its permitted ratio within the ERM, European Exchange Rate Mechanism. The Chancellor came down to earth with a bump, eventually suspending sterling within the ERM and cancelling the interest rate increases on the following day. It was estimated that during the period in which sterling came under pressure on the currency markets until its suspension as a member of the ERM, the Bank of England lost half its foreign currency reserves trying to push up the value of the rapidly devaluing British pound. This incident represented the complete failure of one of the main planks of the government's macroeconomic policy, namely membership of the ERM, which was in effect a trial mechanism for the creation of a pan-European supercurrency under the de facto control of the Bundesbank. Macroeconomic theory only has meaning and value when it is grounded in a thorough analysis of microeconomics, that is to say, when it is based on a proper understanding of the subjective and decentralised nature of economic activity in the real world. Macroeconomic models of the economy that fail to take account and operate in terms of microeconomic factors, when used as the basis for government policy, can be, and have been, extremely damaging for the economy as a whole, including the many individuals and the businesses they own or work for, which produce the wealth of the nation. To the extent that the distinction between macroeconomics 
and microeconomics' meaning and value, it is to clarify analysis of economic phenomena. The abuse to which it has been subjected in recent decades, however, has miserably failed to meet this requirement. The difference between macroeconomic and microeconomic theory is one of analysis only. Macroeconomic deals with precisely the same phenomena as does microeconomics, but simply looks at those phenomena from a different perspective. To abstract aspects of economic phenomena from the concrete situation that gives them meaning and to treat them as quasi-autonomous features of economic reality is to embark upon a course that can only end in confusion. Once politicians have got the idea that the political prospects of manipulating such phenomena are useful to their cause, this confusion turns to delusion and ultimately economic catastrophe and decline of the economy. The slumps, recessions, depressions, inflation and unemployment experienced by Western nations in recent history are the result of such interference with the economy by politicians deluded as to the nature and extent of their powers and abilities. It seems that politicians today would do well to learn that, no matter how convinced they are of their, quote, mandate, end quote, from the electorate, they can no more roll back the tide of economic reality in the modern world than Knut could roll back the tide of the sea. Section 6. International Trade Similar problems occur when economists assume that the economic principles relevant to international trade are essentially different from those relevant to domestic trade. In fact, international trade is no different economically from domestic trade. The problems associated with the former are political in origin. Yet the idea that international trade poses special problems for the economy and thus necessitates special consideration by politicians has persisted. One of the most pertinacious manifestations of this mistaken notion is the almost ubiquitous almost ubiquitous obsession with the balance of trade among both politicians and economists. At times this obsession seems almost pathological in nature. If ever there was a political neurosis, this is it. There is an almost feverish anxiety displayed by governments when the economy is running a so-called unfavourable balance of trade. And all efforts are directed to securing a favourable balance of trade, often at the expense of many domestic industries that rely on imports for survival. But from an economic point of view, there is no such thing as a favourable or unfavourable balance of trade. Moreover, the term balance of trade is ill-defined and misleading. In the strictest sense in which it is used, in reference to trade invisibles, or even trade in visibles and invisibles, but excluding those elements of the economy analysed in the capital account table of the balance of payments, it is of course true that a nation may have imported more than it has exported, that is, that it may have imported more than it has exported of certain kinds of goods and services. But to call this an, quote, unfavourable, end quote, balance of trade, or even a, quote unquote, deficit, is misleading, since it implies an undesirable state of affairs that governments deem within their mandate to rectify by means of economic intervention, or even by direct political fiat. Such deficits will be balanced by credits in other sectors of the economy, for example, foreign investment in the British economy, which is classed as a credit item in the capital account table of the balance of payments. 
The exclusion of the latter from the assessment of what is best for the political economy by government is a political decision. In terms of Britain's overall trading relationship with the rest of the world, however, foreign investment in British industry is important and it is misleading to assess the nation's foreign trade without taking this into account. Just as goods and services can be exported to foreign consumers, investment opportunities in British industry can be made available to foreign investors. Such investments are a vital part of British trade with the rest of the world. A favourable or unfavourable balance of trade is thus entirely a political phenomenon, and the attempts of governments to remedy so-called unfavourable balances through the imposition of trading restrictions, tariffs and currency regulations are made not to maximise economic efficiency, but to protect uncompetitive domestic industries and trading groups whose interests government is particularly sensitive to. In other words, the difficulties and problems normally associated with the balance of trade are problems relating to government manipulation of the economy for its own advantage and the advantage of those industries that employ large numbers of workers whose employment prospects are deemed to count in terms of votes at general elections. From the economic point of view, there cannot be a favourable or unfavourable balance of trade, but there can be a balance of trade that, due to its composition, is deemed unpropitious by politicians and government bureaucrats with certain misguided ideas about what kinds of industry are good for the domestic economy. For example, politicians generally seem to think that it is better for the economy to export the products of heavy and manufacturing industry, visibles, rather than those of the financial and service industries, invisibles. It is thought that the former create greater employment for the domestic economy and that, if the government is to stay in office, it has to develop policies that will benefit the employable population. This usually means that manufacturing industry and other visibles are favoured at the expense of the financial and service industries. However, this is an erroneous way of assessing the needs and well-being of the domestic economy. The assumption that the domestic economy will be in trouble and that there will be greater unemployment if heavy and manufacturing industry decline has not been proved. On the contrary, with the growth of the financial and service industries and the decline of manufacturing industry, along with increased exports of the former and less imports of the latter, the domestic economy can still flourish, other things being equal, for example, provided there is no counteractive government intervention in the economy. Since specialisation and division of labour would be enabled to find its most natural and therefore its most efficient level under these conditions, the result would be a growth in the creation of wealth in the domestic economy. The popular conception that the financial and service indices tend to concentrate wealth into the hands of a few, whereas heavy and manufacturing industry disperse it more evenly throughout society, is entirely false. The notion is based partly on a superficial assessment of the effects of the location of industries and partly on the propaganda put out by socialist political parties, industrial pressure groups and labour unions seeking political advantages for their own industries at the expense of others. In fact, the contrary is the case in some measure where industry involves unionised labour blocs, as much of British industry does, since large labour cartels benefit closed shop labour and penalise those who do not have access into the restricted areas of work for the privileged. By contrast, the financial and service industries 
being less dominated by unionized labor, tend to be far less irrational economically, since they provide greater opportunities for self-employment and the creation of small, decentralized businesses, more competition, which benefits the consumer, and access to employment by those denied work by union labor cartels. Myths about heavy and manufacturing industry being necessary for a viable domestic economy have helped to produce an inefficient economy interference. International trade and division of labour has been one of the casual progress generally, have, as a result, been impeded considerably. Manufacturing industries with law and the commensurate political muscle associated with them have been able to intimidate governments into rigging international trade in their favour to the disadvantage of the majority. In the ethos created by such industries, through their propaganda, helped to mould and inform the opinions of the general public, the financial and service industries seem less essential to the overall conditions necessary for the growth of the economy. Therefore, consideration of these industries features less in the formulation of government policy and informs the voting intentions of the population less than does that of manufacturing industry. The fact that domestic manufacturing may be vastly uncompetitive and economic and therefore that greater efficiency and thus growth of the economy could be achieved by importing such products is a secondary matter to on the next election. In the political ethos of our age, with its idolatry of the crassest form of democracy is to stay in power, no matter how much they may be willing to sacrifice progress for the sake of votes from employees of large domestic manufacturing industries have been led to believe that their only hope of employment is in government investment in heavy and manufacturing industry. The result of government policy informed by such views is that tariffs and import quotas are placed on products manufactured in foreign countries. And this damages not only foreign economies through restricting their sales outlets in those industries in which they excel, but also the domestic economy by benefiting industries that are uncompetitive and wasteful. That is to say, it leads to a less efficient use of capital in the domestic economy than would otherwise be the case. Any supposed unfavourable balance of trade is thus a political concept. An unfavourable balance of trade in a particular industry or group of industries domestic economy by the government's consideration if the government's prospects of re-election are to be prioritised. Policies aimed at any such supposed unfavourable but first, is it in terms of Britain's overall trade with the rest of the world to export more than we import? The absurdity of the balance of trade fetish now becomes apparent. In fact, we can only export if we also import. Importing and exporting is simply trading over a national boundary, which is a political just as there is no point in selling the domestic economy if you do not wish to, so also there is no point in selling goods and services abroad if we do not wish to buy foreign goods and services. When a British manufacturer wishes to export his goods, those abroad intending to purchase them have to obtain sterling to pay for the goods. This means that some of those holding sterling have to be prepared to exchange their sterling for foreign currency. They will only do this if they believe that they can use foreign... If they are denied the right to spend their foreign currency in this way, they will stop holding it, and those wishing to purchase British goods will be unable to obtain sterling with which to trade. And therefore, we cannot export more than we import, although we can import more of certain types of goods than the government and domestic manufacturers of those goods would like us to import. Two-way thing. 
whether at home or abroad. Each party benefits, each party gains something, and the use of a common medium of exchange, money, or of several mediums, foreign currencies, to make trade easier and more rational, does not alter this basic fact of economic life. To suggest that we should, or could, export more than we import, is nonsense. As we shall see, the argument that exchange rates could be fixed at levels that would help British population really want to export more than it imports. The very existence of this so-called balance does want to buy foreign goods. It is certain domestic industries and the governments that support those industries that do not wish consumers to buy from foreign companies the same keys domestic industries produce. Therefore, the government limits the number and volume of goods allowed to be imported or imposes tariffs on them, consumers. This helps selected domestic industries by giving them an unfair advantage. This advantage is not only unfair to foreign companies, but also to domestic consumers who wish to buy from foreign companies because they perceive that they will get better value for their money if they do so. Problem is a problem only for politicians and domestic manufacturers who do not wish consumers to exercise their freedom to buy the goods they desire from manufacturers. Government is the as foreign. This so-called bad form of economic tyranny. Third, if British consumers wish to buy foreign goods and services, they must also produce goods and services that foreign consumers will. There is no market, and thus no import or export. The same holds for foreign consumers who weigh thing. How can we export goods to Germany to give them away? And how can goods that we import without selling them for less than their market price? To suggest that we should export more than we import is to suggest that we should give away at least part for them than they can command in the open market. Of course, this is thereby making its products more attractive to consumers. That is to say, the subsidy pays part to purchase the product. When they subsidise uncompetitive industries with funds raised through taxation in order to make inferior goods look attractive to consumers who would not otherwise consider buying them, whether in domestic or foreign markets. The effect is the same. It officially manipulates the exchange rate between sterling and foreign currency, or devalues the pound in relation to foreign currency. Particular industries or companies may benefit in the short term by increasing their sales abroad, but the overall effect is damaging, since by devaluing the pound or manipulating exchange rates, the government simply forces British pay away. That is for sterling than it could command in a free market. Giving British goods away or selling them at artificially low prices, that is, selling them for less than they are worth in the open market and export more than we import ultimately. But such activity should not be considered trade in the proper false information to manufacturers and consumers alike. It is extremely detrimental to the economy. The these goods to foreign consumers by manipulating exchange rates, that is, devaluing sterling, in order to stimulate economically. It is tantamount to saying that we should give away certain goods to foreign consumers, or at least pay for them partially ourselves, in order to stimulate sales and thus greater productivity in these industries and semi-manufactured products. Business is affected in this way, conditions facing them. In this case, the cost is passed on to the consumer. This may result in falling sales, depending on the nature of the product. If it is a disease, Alternatively, they could absorb the extra costs themselves 
thereby reducing the profitability of the business and slowing as well at prices, again, with possible knock-on effects, such as redundant. In the case of imported capital, raw materials, semi-finished products, machinery, etc., that are used in the manufacture of goods destined for exportation, this may lead to the anomalous situation in which the attempts to promote exports by controlling exchange rates artificially raises the costs of these goods, thereby making them less attractive to foreign consumers and possibly exports. be at best useless and perhaps even harmful in the short term. Buy British, the consumer is told, as if this were the best course under all possible conditions and in all situations. Buying British goods is always deemed by those politicians to be beneficial for the British economy. Governments motivated by such ideology seek to develop policy aimed at induce from British rather than foreign manufacturers by penalising the purchase of those goods from abroad with high tariffs or by limiting the number of imports to a level significantly affect the output of domestic manufacturers of such goods. A good example of the kind tariffs on goods imported from abroad distrather make it impossible outside national boundaries except on black markets for smuggled goods and this distorts the price mechanism resulting in an inefficient, that is, less productive, Allocation of scarce tariffs prevent economic rationality of domestic industries, but any supposed gains are purely short-term. Furthermore, they affect the privileged groups themselves in a limited way only, since ultimately it is in knowledge groups, since where tariffs exist, they are generally applied across a large range of products to hinder the efficient functioning of the free market order. While the beneficial effects of tariffs are very limited, even for those industries that are protected by them, is extensive. They protect domestic manufacturers of goods that are of poorer quality than imported goods of the same kind and penalise the manufacturers of better quality or more competitively priced goods in other countries. Such protection of domestic manufacturers is disadvantageous not only to the domestic consumer but ultimately to the privileged domestic manufacturer since an economy that is heavily protected by tariffs, will be less competitive, less economically efficient, and hence less dynamic. That is to say, there will be less economic growth and social amelioration generally, and this will affect all in society, including those who are ostensibly protected by tariffs. No one wins in the end, since the ultimate effect of applying tariffs is a backward economy. A pertinent example of the consequences of such measures is the price of food in Britain since its entry into the EEC. Food far more expensive than they need be, since the sale of much cheaper food is penalised by heavy tariffs if it is imported from non-European Union countries. When tariffs are combined with the subsidising of exports, the problems are only exacerbated. The domestic consumer again loses out. Not only is he denied the right taxpayer, he also has to help pay the different subsidy systems are inextricably linked the one in the other, as nations in turn retaliate against subsidies with tariffs. Consumers and taxpayers are further such poor to imports, but they are economically irrational if British goods are inferior, therefore detrimental to domestic consumers, money, harmful to foreign manufacturers who are penalised for producing competitively priced or superior goods, and harmful to the domestic economy, which is stimulated into producing goods that are uncompetitive or of inferior quality. 
in a free market economy. Without tariffs and subsidies, such capital will be used to generate productivity in industries where British firms excel. And this in turn then produces the very opposite of its intended purpose. The abandonment of this system will, in the long run, create the very conditions designed to foster and on a much more sustainable only helps the British economy when the goods bought are the best value for money. Where this is not the case, buying foreign goods is ultimately of more benefit to the British economy since it helps in terms of sound economic principles. It also helps to rationalise the international division and specialisation of labour, thereby helping to maximise world productivity. Of course, is of benefit to the British economy also. Buying British when British goods are inferior gives the wrong information to British industry concerning what it is best at producing. As a result, the economy does not function at its most efficient level, a situation that is detrimental to all concerned, since it leads manufacturers to believe that when tariffs, import restrictions and embargoes are used to support an inefficient and uncompetitive domestic industry, both the domestic real problem of a so-called unfavourable balance of trade is that people on the microeconomic level, the actors in the real economy, do not produce the required by government policy. People do not trade in the goods and services or with the particular manufacturers or groups of manufacturers that the government would like them to trade with. Government, therefore, restricts their freedom to trade by irrational and unproductive procedure is to change and creation by the population and politicians alike of what economic benefit to the economy. Short-sighted concentration by governments on economic policies aimed at maximising output in tradition also be detrimental for the nation and overlooks even the political advantages that the international division of labour and economic interdependence create, namely political security on the international level and friendship between nations generally. Events may justify, in some circumstances, the subordination of certain kinds rather than economic objectives, but instances of them than is often supposed. More often than not, arguments for protecting certain industries for the sake of national security and defence are thinly disguised attempts by uncompetitive firms and industries orders by restricting the consumer's freedom to purchase goods and services from abroad. Again, to the extent they only serve to subsidise surging inefficiency and the wasteful use and management of the scarce economic resources available to the economy slow down to uncompetitive industries. The fortress nation mentality leads to economy and to less trade-based interdependence between nations. Hostile relations and even war are far more likely when nations are economically isolated or engaged in trade wars in this way. International trade, on the other hand, encourages stronger links between nations and therefore greater less likelihood of war, less need for the financing of massive war machines, which are usually irrational from an economic point of view, and thus greater prosperity for all in Argentina and the Falklands War in 1982. Prior to Britain's entry into the European Economic Community, trade between Argentina and Britain in beef products was considerable. After entry into the EEC, however, a tariff of 70 pence was imposed on each pound of meat products imported from Argentina. Within two years, meat imports from Argentina were cut in half and continued to decrease from then on. Invasion of the Falklands. The cost to the British taxpayer of liberating these islands ran into many million to protect the Falklands from further threat. 
Richard Bodie put his finger on the point when he wrote, quote, So long as the British consumer is denied the supply of cheap, so long as we subscribe to the CAP, the Common Agri-SCP, Stephen C. One or two questions. Would Argentina, while so dependent on her export trade with us for her prosperity, cut off that trade? What could she have gained by acquiring those bleak islands when she could have lost so much? Common sense seems to suggest that the British people is fully unaware of the Falklands if the economic alliance with Argentina had not been severed by us in 1973. End quote. Before Britain entered the EEC, cheap Argentinian beef was available to the British household and the trade with Argentina was good. When Britain entered the EEC, however, import tariffs were imposed on Argentinian beef with EEC beef products, which were more expensive. As a result, the cost of beef rose sharply and beef became a luxury for many average prices for beef. The British taxpayer now has to pay for lens. Had the British trade with Argentina been allowed to continue operating on rational economic principles of free trade, rather than being hampered by politicians seeking to bolt, millions of British taxpayers would be better off through not having to pay exorbitant prices for beef and so to defend the Falkland Islands against a former trading partner, to say nothing of the lives that would have been saved and the unnecessary destruction that would have been avoided on rational ends of conflicts the world over that the Falklands War was an example of. This is in stark contrast to the creation of political power blocks aimed at establishing confederations of states, which tends to aggravate hostility and mistrust between nations and, as a consequence, has a negative effect on world peace. International free trade, on the other hand, helps to promote and safeguard world peaces across national frontiers, and it is on this account that special characteristics are involved, which cause it to differ from trade within national boundaries. End quote. The special characteristics and problems of international trade are not economic in nature, but entirely political. To treat them without making it clear that these are political problems that are economically irrational in nature is misleading. It gives the impression that there are economic problems associated with international trade that necessitate government management in this area. In fact, all the distinctive characteristics of international trade as compared with domestic trade are political in nature, and most of the problems involved in trading with foreign countries are created by government interference and mismanagement. Quite simply put, a national boundary phenomenon and awareness of the differences is essential if we are to have a proper understanding. Those relevant to international trade are no different from those relevant to domestic trade. Problems associated with the former are political in origin, Yet, the idea that international trade poses necessitates special consideration by politicians has persisted. One of the most pertinacious manifestations of this mistaken notion is the almost ubiquitous obsession with the balance of trade among both politicians and economists. Obsession seems almost pathological in nature. If ever there was a political neurosis, this is it. There is an almost feverish anxiety displayed by governments when the economy is running a so-called unfa- a favourable balance of trade and at the expense of many domestic industries. But from an econ, there is no such thing as a favourable in the strictest sense in which it is used in reference to trade in visible, visibles and invisibles, but excluding those elements of the economy analysed in the capital account table of the balance of payments. It is of course true that a nation may have imported 
more than it has exported, that it may have imported more than it has exported of certain kinds of goods. But to call this an, quote, unfairs of trade, or even a, quote, unquote, sliding, since it implies an undesirable state of affairs that governments deem within their mandate to rectify by means of economic intervention, or even by direct political fiat. Such deficits will be balanced by credits in other sectors of the economy, for example, foreign investment in the British economy, which is classed as a credit item in the capital account table of the balance of payments. The exclusion of the latter from the assessment of what government is a political decision. In terms of Britain's overall trading relationship with the rest of the world, however, foreign industry is important and it is without taking this into account. Just as goods and services can be exported to foreign consumers, investment opportunities in British such investments are a vital part. A favourable or unfavourable balance of trade is thus entirely a political phenomenon, and the attempts of governments to remedy so-called unfavourable balances through the imposition of trading restrictive tariffs and current not to maximise domestic industries and trading groups whose interests government is particularly sensitive to. In other words, the difficulties and problems normally associated with the balance of trade are problems relating to government of those industries that employ large numbers of workers whose employment. From the economic point of view, there cannot be a favour and be a balance of trade that position is capacious by politicians and government bureaucrats with certain misguided ideas about what kinds of industry are good for the domestic economy. For example, politicians generally seem to think that it is service industries, invisibles, or create greater employment for the domestic economy, and that, if the government is to stay in office, it has to develop policies that will benefit the employable at the expense of the financial and service industries. However, this is an erroneous way of assessing the needs and well-being of the domestic economy. The assumption that the domestic economy will be in trouble and that there has not been proved. On the contrary, with the growth of the financial and service industries and the decline of manufacturing industry, along with increased exports of the former and less imports of the latter, the domestic economy can still flourish, other things being equal. For example, the popular conception that the financial and service industries tend to concentrate wealth into the hands of a few, whereas heavy and manufacturing industry disperse it more evenly. Superficial assessment of the effects of the location of industries and partly on the propaganda put up industrial pressure groups equal advantages for their own industries at the exact. The contrary is the case in some measure where industry involves unionised labour blocks, as much of British industry does, tells, benefit closed shop labour and penalise access into the restricted areas of work. The result is greater unemployment for many for the sake of secure employment for the privileged. By contrast, the financial and service industries, being less dominated by unionised labour, tend to be far less provide greater opportunities for self-employment and the creation of small decentralised businesses, more competition, which benefits the consumer and access to employment by those denied work by union labour cartels. Myths about heavy and manufacturing a viable domestic economy have helped to produce an inefficient economy hampered by political interference. International trade and division of labour has been one of the casualties and the growth of the economy and progress generally have, as a result, been impeded considerably. Those manufacturing industries with large labour unions 
and the commensurate political muscle associated with able to intimidate governments into rigging international trade in their favour to the dis- In the ethos created by such industries and groups, which, through their propaganda, help to mould and inform the opinions of the general public, the financial and service industries seem less essential to the overall conditions necessary for the growth of the economy. Therefore, consideration of these industries features less in the formulation of government policy and informs the voting intentions of the population less than does tree. The fact that domestic manufacturing industry may be vastly uncompetitive, but irrational, and therefore that greater efficiency and thus growth of the economy could be achieved by importing such products is a secondary matter to governments who always have an eye on the next election. In the political ethos of our age, with its idolatry of the crassest form of democracy, the first principle of government is to stay in power. No matter how much they may talk of progress, therefore, governments are usually willing to sacrifice progress for the sake of votes from manufacturing industries and people who have been led to believe that it is in government investment in heavy and manufacturing industry. The result of government policy informed by such views is that taxes are placed on products manufactured in foreign countries, and this damages not outlets in those industries in which they excel, but also the domestic economy by benefiting industries that are uncompetitive and wasteful. That is to say, it leads to a less efficient use of capital in the domestic economy than would otherwise be the case. Any supposed unfavourable balance of trade is thus a political concept. An unfavourable balance of trade in a particular industry or group of industries deemed necessary for the domestic economy by the government and requiring special consideration if the government's prospects of re-election are to be prioritised. Policies aimed at remedying any such supposed unfavourable balance of trade are economically flawed. First, is it possible, ultimately, in terms of Britain's overall trade with the rest of the world, to export more than we import? If so, why not export as much as possible and import nothing? The absurdity of the balance of trade fetish now becomes apparent. In fact, we can only export if we also import. Importing and exporting is simply trading over a national boundary, which is a political, not an economic phenomenon. Just as there is no point in selling goods and services in the domestic economy if we do not wish to purchase goods and services from others, so also there is no point in selling goods and services abroad if we do not wish to buy foreign goods and services. When a British manufacturer wishes to export his goods, those abroad intended to purchase them have to obtain sterling to pay for the goods. This means that some of those holding sterling have to be prepared to exchange their sterling for foreign currency. They will only do this if they believe that they can use foreign currency to purchase goods or services from abroad. If they are denied the right to spend their foreign currency in this way, they will stop holding it and and those wishing to purchase British goods will be unable to obtain sterling with which to trade and therefore exporting must cease also. Ultimately, therefore, we cannot export more than we import although we can import more of certain types of goods than the government and domestic manufacturers of those goods would like us to import. Trading is a two-way thing, whether at home or abroad. Each party benefits, each party gains something, and the use of a common medium of exchange, money, or of several mediums, foreign currencies, to make trade easier, 
and more rational does not alter this basic fact of economic life. To suggest that we should or could export more than we import is nonsense. As we shall see, the argument that exchange rates could be fixed at levels that would help to create such an excess of exports over imports is equally mistaken from the economic point of view. Second, does the British population really want to export more than it imports? The very existence of this so-called balance of trade problem demonstrates that the public does want to buy foreign goods. It is certain domestic industries and the governments that support those industries that do not wish consumers to buy from foreign companies the same kind of goods that these domestic industries produce. Therefore, the government limits the number and volume of goods allowed to be imported or imposes tariffs on them, which makes them less attractive to domestic customers. This helps selected domestic industries by giving them an unfair advantage. This advantage is not only unfair to foreign companies, but also to domestic consumers who wish to buy from foreign companies because they perceive that they will get better value for their money if they do so. The balance of trade problem is a problem only for politicians and domestic manufacturers who do not wish consumers to exercise their freedom to buy the goods they desire from manufacturers of their own choice. Government is lobbied by domestic industries that cannot compete with superior or more competitively priced products from abroad to enforce regulations that deny customers the freedom to purchase foreign goods or induce them to purchase domestically manufactured goods by imposing tariffs and quotas, rationing on imported goods. The so-called balance of trade problem is simply a euphemism for a protection racket, a form of economic tyranny. Third, if British consumers wish to buy foreign goods and services, they must also produce goods and services that foreign customers will buy. Otherwise, there is no market, and thus no import or export. The same holds for foreign consumers wishing to purchase British goods. A market is a two-way thing. How can we export goods to foreign countries without importing goods, unless we are determined to give them away? And how can we export more goods than we import without selling them for less than their market price? To suggest that we should export more than we import is to suggest that we should give away at least part of our goods, that we should take less in return for them than they can command in the open market. Of course, this is the absurdity of the government subsidising of industries that it wishes to develop and expand, whether in international or domestic markets. When the government subsidises an industry, it helps it to reduce its real costs, thereby making its products more attractive to consumers. That is to say, the subsidy pays part of the costs for those wishing to purchase the product. When the government subsidises industries that would not survive without its help, it is forcing British taxpayers to give away their wealth. That is, it forces them to subsidise uncompetitive industries with funds raised through taxation in order to make inferior goods look attractive to consumers who would not otherwise consider buying them, whether in domestic or foreign markets. The effect is the same when the government artificially manipulates the exchange rate between sterling and foreign currency or devalues the pound in relation to foreign currency in order to make British goods more attractive to foreign consumers. Particular industries or companies may benefit in the short term by increasing their sales abroad, but the overall effect is damaging since, by devaluing the pound or manipulating exchange rates, the government simply forces British people to give their money away. That is, 
to take less in exchange for sterling than I could command in a free market. Giving British goods away or selling them at artificially low prices, that is, selling them for less than they are worth in the open market, is the only way that we can export more than we import ultimately. But such activity should not be considered trade in the proper sense. And because it disturbs the price mechanism and gives false information to manufacturers and consumers alike, it is extremely detrimental to the economy. The argument for artificially lowering the costs of British goods to foreign consumers by manipulating exchange rates, that is, devaluing sterling, in order to stimulate exports, is thus nonsense economically. It is tantamount to saying that we should give away certain goods to foreign consumers, or at least pay for them partially ourselves, in order to stimulate sales and thus greater productivity in these industries. Furthermore, when governments engage in such interventionist activities, for example, exchange rate controls, those who import products are penalised since exchange rates are rigged against them. This is damaging, not only for individuals who wish to purchase consumption goods from abroad, but also for domestic businesses that rely on imported capital goods, raw materials and semi-manufactured products. Businesses affected in this way are forced to respond to the new conditions facing them. On the one hand, they could raise prices themselves. In this case, the cost is passed on to the consumer. This may result in falling sales, depending on the nature of the product. If it is a non-essential or luxury item, consumers may stop buying the product or reduce their purchases, thereby creating difficulties for the company, perhaps resulting in redundancies. Alternatively, they could absorb the extra costs themselves, thereby reducing the profitability of the business and slowing down development and expansion, as well as movement towards more competitive prices, again with possible knock-on effects such as redundancies. In the case of imported capital goods, that is, goods consumed in the manufacture of other goods, raw materials, semi-finished products, machinery, etc., that are used in the manufacture of goods destined for exportation, this may lead to the anomalous situation in which the attempt to promote exports by controlling exchange rates artificially raises the cost of these goods, thereby making them less attractive to foreign consumers and possibly resulting in a fall in exports. The effect for some exporters, therefore, may be at best useless and perhaps even harmful in the short term. Buy British, the consumer is told, as if this were the best course under all possible conditions and in all situations. Buying British goods is always deemed by these politicians to be beneficial for the British economy. Governments motivated by such ideology seek to develop policy aimed at inducing the public to buy certain goods from British rather than foreign manufacturers by penalising the purchase of those goods from abroad with high tariffs or by limiting the number of imports to a level that will not significantly affect the output of domestic manufacturers of such goods. A good example of the kind of damage done by such policies is the effect on the economy of import tariffs. Tariffs on goods imported from abroad destroy competition or rather make it impossible outside national boundaries, except on black markets for smuggled goods, and this distorts the price mechanism, resulting in an inefficient, that is, less productive, allocation of scarce resources. Tariffs prevent economic rationalisation and thus hinder economic progress. The rationale, ostensibly, is to protect domestic industries, but any supposed gains are purely short-term. Furthermore, 
They affect the privileged groups themselves in a limited way only, since ultimately it is in no one's interests, including such privileged groups, since where tariffs exist, they are generally applied across a large range of products to hinder the efficient functioning of the free market order. While the beneficial effects of tariffs are very limited, even for those industries that are protected by them, the disruption and damage they cause in the wider economy is extensive. They protect domestic manufacturers of goods that are of poorer quality or more expensive than imported goods of the same kind and penalize the manufacturers of better quality or more competitively priced goods in other countries. Such protection of domestic manufacturers is disadvantageous not only to the domestic consumer but ultimately to the privileged domestic manufacturer since an economy that is heavily protected by tariffs will be less competitive, less economically efficient and hence less dynamic. That is to say, there will be less economic growth and social amelioration generally and this will affect all in society, including those who are ostensibly protected by tariffs. No one wins in the end since the ultimate effect of applying tariffs is a backward economy. A pertinent example of the consequences of such measures is the price of food in Britain since the entry into the EEC. Food prices in Britain today are far more expensive than they need be since the sale of much cheaper food is penalised by heavy tariffs if it is imported from non-European Union countries. When tariffs are combined with the subsidising of exports, the problems are only exacerbated. The domestic consumer again loses out not only is he denied the right to buy cheaper or better product from abroad, as a taxpayer, he also has to help pay the costs of domestically manufactured products bought by foreign consumers. Since the tariff and subsidy systems are inextricably linked, the one inevitably leading to the other, as nations in turn retaliate against every new round in the development of an ever-escalating trade war. Such policies are unnecessary if British goods really are superior to imports, but they are economically irrational if British goods are inferior to imported goods. They are therefore detrimental to domestic consumers who do not get maximum value for their money, harmful to foreign manufacturers who are penalised for producing competitively priced or superior goods, and harmful to the domestic economy, which is stimulated into producing goods that are uncompetitive in real terms or of inferior quality. Furthermore, the manufacturer of uncompetitively priced or inferior quality goods does not constitute the best use of the scarce resources available to the economy. In a free market economy, without tariffs and subsidies, such capital will be used to generate productivity in industries where British firms excel, and this in turn will lead to greater exports. Thus, while the tariff and subsidy system often produces the very opposite of its intended purpose, the abandonment of the system will, in the long run, creates the very conditions it is ostensibly designed to foster and on a much more sustainable basis. Buying British goods ultimately only helps the British economy when the goods bought are the best value for money. Where this is not the case, buying foreign goods is ultimately of more benefit to the British economy since it helps to rationalise the economy in terms of sound economic principles. It also helps to rationalise the international division and specialisation of labour, thereby helping to maximise world productivity and world economic amelioration, which, in turn, of course, is to benefit the British economy also. Buying British when British goods are inferior gives the wrong information to British industry concerning what it is best at producing, 
As a result, the economy does not function at its most efficient level, a situation that is detrimental to all concerned, since it leads manufacturers to believe that the products are better than in fact they are, and this encourages second-rate practices and the waste of scarce resources. When tariffs, import restrictions and embargoes are used to support an inefficient and uncompetitive domestic industry, both the domestic and foreign economies suffer immeasurably. For politicians, the real problem of a so-called unfavourable balance of trade is that people on a microeconomic level, that is to say, actors in the real economy, do not produce the aggregate or macroeconomic results required by government policy. People do not trade in the goods and services or with the particular manufacturers or groups of manufacturers that the government would like them to trade with. Government, therefore, restricts their freedom to trade by introducing economic disincentives for trade in certain imported goods. If this economically irrational and unproductive procedure is to change, and greater international division and specialisation of labour, leading to greater wealth creation, is to be attained, there must be a change in perception by the population, and politicians alike, of what, in terms of both domestic and international trade, is of real economic benefit to the economy. Short-sighted concentration by governments on economic policies aimed at maximising outputs in traditional domestic industries and protecting them against foreign competitors can also be detrimental for the nation on a political level. It tends to foster a fortress nation mentality and overlooks even the political advantages that the international division of labour and economic interdependence create, namely political security on the international level and friendship between nations generally. Matters of national security and defence may justify, in some circumstances, the subordination of certain kinds of economic interdependence and free trade between nations to rational, political, rather than economic objectives. But instances of this are far less common than is often supposed. More often than not, arguments for protecting certain industries for the sake of national security and defence are thinly disguised attempts by uncompetitive firms and industries to create monopolies within national borders by restricting the consumer's freedom to purchase goods and services from abroad. Again, to the extent that such arguments succeed, they only serve to subsidise second-rate or uncompetitively priced goods, thereby encouraging inefficiency and the wasteful use and management of the scarce economic resources available to the economy. In other words, they slow down economic progress by granting privileged status to uncompetitive industries. The fortress nation mentality leads to a less developed and stable world economy and to less trade-based interdependence between nations. Hostile relations and even war are far more likely when nations are economically isolated or engaged in trade wars in this way. International trade, on the other hand, encourages stronger links between nations and therefore greater peace and cooperation, resulting in less likelihood of war, less need for the financing of massive war machines, which are usually irrational from an economic point of view, and thus greater prosperity for all. A pertinent example of the last point was the breakdown of relations between Britain and Argentina and the Falklands War in 1982. Prior to Britain's entry into the European Economic Community, trade between Argentina and Britain in beef products was considerable. After entry into the EEC, however, a tariff of 70 pence was imposed on each pound of meat products imported from Argentina, 
within two years. Meat imports from Argentina were cut in half and continued to decrease from then on. Then, in 1982, came the Argentinian invasion of the Falklands. The cost to the British taxpayer of liberating these islands ran into many millions, and it costs millions each year to protect the Falklands from further threat. Richard Bodie put his finger on the point when he wrote, quote, So long as the British consumer is denied the supply of cheap beef from Argentina, which means so long as we subsidise the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy of the EEC, and so long as the British taxpayer has to pay these massive sums of money to ward off the Argentinians, we are entitled to ask one or two questions. Would Argentina, while so dependent on her export trade with us for her prosperity, have deliberately cut off that trade? What could she have gained by acquiring those bleak islands when she could have lost so much? Common sense seems to suggest that the British people would have remained blissfully unaware of the Falklands if the economic alliance with Argentina had not been severed by us in 1973. Before Britain entered the EEC, cheap Argentinian beef was available to the British household and the trade with Argentina was good. When Britain entered the EEC, however, import tariffs were imposed on Argentinian beef in order to keep prices in line with EEC beef products, which were more expensive. As a result, the cost of beef rose sharply and beef became a luxury for many average households. On top of having to pay vastly inflated prices for beef, the British taxpayer now has to pay for the defence of the Falklands. Had the British trade with Argentina been allowed to continue operating on rational economic principles of free trade, rather than being hampered by politicians seeking to bolster the EEC's common agricultural policy, which is irrational from an economic point of view, the Falklands War would most likely not have been fought. Millions of British taxpayers would be better off through not having to pay exorbitant prices for beef and substantial tax sums to defend the Falkland Islands against a former trading partner, to say nothing of the lives that would have been saved and the unnecessary destruction that would have been avoided. International free trade based on rational economic principles is a bulwark against the kinds of conflict the world over that the Falklands War was an example of. This is in stark contrast to the creation of political power blocks aimed at establishing economically self-sufficient states and federations of states, which tends to aggravate hostility and mistrust between nations and, as a consequence, has a negative effect on world peace. International free trade, on the other hand, helps to promote and safeguard world peace and world and national economic stability. According to B.V. Marshall, quote, International trade involves the exchange of goods and services across national frontiers, and it is on this account that special characteristics are involved, which cause it to differ from trade within national boundaries. End quote. The special characteristics and problems of international trade are not economic in nature, but entirely political. To treat them as economic problems, or even to deal with them under the discipline of economics, without making clear that these are political problems that are economically irrational in nature, is misleading. It gives the impression that there are economic problems associated with international trade that necessitate government management in this area. In fact, all the distinctive characteristics of international trade, as compared with domestic trade, are political in nature, and most of the problems involved in trading with foreign countries are created by government interference and mismanagement. Quite simply put, a national boundary is not an economic phenomenon. It is a political phenomenon, and awareness of the difference is essential 
if we are to have a proper understanding of economic reality, the economic principles relevant to international trade are no different from those relevant to domestic trade. Section 7. Economics as a Science The growth of the exact sciences over the past 200 years and the attendant status that these disciplines have achieved in both the academic and non-academic world has fostered among many of the practitioners has fostered among many of the practitioners of the social sciences the desire to mimic the methods of exact science. To a large extent, this may have been motivated by the desires of sociologists to attain the same kind of respect and social adulation that is heaped upon scientists in modern Western society. Whether this is so or not, the social sciences generally are still not taken seriously as sciences by the vast majority of people. The exception to this are psychiatry, which has been able to hitch a ride on the back of medicine and certain branches of economics that attempt to deal with their subject matter in a precise mathematical fashion. The value of presenting economic principles and theories in terms of mathematical formulas, however, has been considerably overestimated. It is generally thought that mathematics, the purest of the sciences, is able to provide mankind with certainty, a prize that man has always shown himself most eager to obtain, and for which he has been prepared to expend the greatest efforts. This has been, and continues to be, a potent manifestation of fallen man's basic idolatry of the created order. Having denied the God of Scripture, the creator of all things, and thus man's ultimate certainty, that is, the light without which nothing else can be understood, and therefore whose existence must be presupposed in all human thought if it is to be meaningful and according to truth, man seeks, in the created order, some other ultimate certainty of principle upon which to base his life. Science, that is to say, the exact sciences, particularly mathematics, has, in our time, provided mankind with its idol. Modern man's faith in mathematics as the source of ultimate certainty is very much in evidence in Western culture, and the idea that if something can be proved mathematically, it must of necessity be true as a common notion. In the popular mindset of our day, even an argument purporting to prove or disprove the existence of God mathematically carries far more weight than any other form of argumentation. Mathematics deals with certainties, or so it is generally thought. The practitioners of the exact sciences have become the priests of our technocratic society. Therefore, if an academic discipline is to find the unquestioning acceptance among the general public that its practitioners wish it to achieve, and of course, the attendant social status for themselves as the guardians of the knowledge it represents, it must be considered among the exact sciences, and this is accomplished by adopting the methods of the exact sciences. The problem with this is that the methods of the exact sciences are inappropriate to the social sciences, since what is studied in a discipline such as economics is not constant relationship between physical properties, but the subjective decisions and choices of millions of individuals reacting to the conditions facing them in diverse and unpredictable ways. It is not possible to quantify and measure such phenomena in a way that it is possible, for instance, to quantify and measure the properties of a gas. The factors in the equation of each individual choice made by consumers in the marketplace are different in each individual case, being based 
not only on the unique antecedent artwork conditions affecting the future possibilities open to the individuals involved, but also upon the subjective psychological conditions peculiar to each individual. Such phenomena, either individually or in the aggregate, are not susceptible of rational mathematical analysis. Theories regarding the outcome of changes occurring in the economy, which is simply the total of all these individual subjective choices, cannot be tested or predicted in the way that, say, the strength of an iron girder can be tested and its performance when placed under a given amount of stress predicted. Mises writes, quote, Technology can tell us how thick a steel plate must be in order not to be pierced by a bullet fired at a distance of 300 yards from a Winchester rifle. It can thus answer the question why a man who took shelter behind a steel plate of a known thickness was hurt or not hurt by a shot fired. History is at a loss to explain, with the same assurance, why there was a rise in the price of milk of 10%, or why President Roosevelt defeated Governor Dewey in the election of 1944, or why France was, from 1870 to 1940, under a republican constitution. Such problems do not allow any treatment other than that of understanding. End quote. In other words, history is not an exact science, and can never be turned into an exact science by the amassing of statistical data relating to historical events. The attempts to turn economics into an exact science by the use of economic statistics is equally unsatisfactory. Yet increasingly, economists have sought to present the discipline in terms of the methodology of the exact sciences. The use of mathematical language, therefore, has become a prominent feature of modern economics. This is not to say that the use of all mathematical formulae in economic theory is necessarily illegitimate, but it is to warn against placing too much confidence in the use and value of such methods. In fact, the most that mathematics can achieve in economic theory is to provide the discipline with a kind of shorthand and algebraic method of stating economic theory. Nonetheless, the use of such a shorthand, though not illegitimate per se, is not essentially part of the process of economic reasoning and can only have meaning for those who have learned the notation involved. That is to say, it can, of itself, make no contribution to our understanding of economic phenomena. The value of the use of mathematics in economic theory is limited to that of condensing logical theory into algebraic representations. In spite of this, the use of mathematics in economic theory has increased and the attempts to gain scientific status for the discipline has continued. Econometrics, for example, is an attempt to turn what is essentially a social, and thus far from exact, science into an exact science. The dictum, quote, science is measurement, end quote, have led the proponents of econometrics to conclude that if economics can be turned into a quantitative discipline through the analysis of statistics, its theories can be tested like the theories of any other exact science. Models can then be constructed that can forecast future economic conditions. The problem with this is that economics is not an exact science and statistical data relating to economic phenomena, like statistical data relating to other fields of historical study, are open to a bewildering variety of interpretations and explanations. Quote, As there are in the field of social affairs, no constant relations between magnitudes, end quote, writes Ludwig von Mises, quote, no measurement is possible and economics 
can never become quantitative, end quote. Models based on statistical data operate in terms of the assumptions programmed into them by their creators or programmers, and it is these assumptions that govern a model's interpretation of the statistics available to it. Any forecasts based on such models would be intrinsically no more reliable than the forecasts based on non-statistical models using the same criteria. In the field of economics, the most that mathematics can do is to state past economic phenomena in terms of mathematical formulae. Thus, as Mises has written, quote, If a statistician determines that a rise of 10% in the supply of potatoes in Atlantis at a definite time was followed by a fall of 8% in the price, he does not establish anything about what happened or may happen with the change in the supply of potatoes in another county or at another time. He has not, quote, measured, unquote, the, quote, elasticity of demand, unquote, of potatoes. He has established a unique and individual historical fact. No intelligent man can doubt that the behaviour of men with regard to potatoes and every other commodity is variable. Different individuals value the same things in a different way, and valuations change with the same individuals with changing conditions. End quote. It is not possible, therefore, for econometrics to provide us with the kind of information, viz. constant relations between economic phenomena, necessary to construct models of the economy that will forecast accurately the economic conditions resulting from, say, changes in government monetary or fiscal policy. The value of econometrics has thus been greatly overestimated, and the hope that it will provide economists with the statistical data necessary to treat economics as an exact science is misguided and futile. Not surprisingly, the growth of econometrics, which has been considerable since 1930 when the Econometric Society was formed, and the concept of economics as an exact science has tended to foster the belief that growth of the economy can be effectively planned and controlled by government policy based on the forecasts of econometric models. As with all ostensible justifications of government control of the economy, the results fail to come up to expectations and further tinkering with the economy is deemed necessary. This results in greater discrepancy between expectations and reality, which in turn leads to further regulation. This goes on until total control turns into mismanagement and total failure to control, with the consequent decline of the economy under a morass of regulations, obstructions and disincentives to the creation of wealth. Section 8. Economics and Political Economy All the distinctions between the various economic disciplines discussed above, to some extent, misrepresent the basic principles of economic reality upon which the economy works. Under these classifications, much that is essentially non-economic is brought to bear upon the consideration of economic principles. The result is a complex group of interrelated sub-disciplines that are difficult to understand and relate to each other at many points. What we should, perhaps, in common parlance, call a mess. Even graduates with higher degrees in economics often find it difficult to make sense of the economic theories they have devoted so much time to studying. This problem is much in evidence in the media. Its coverage of politics and its examination of the proposed economic policies put forward by the various political parties as the basis upon which they will make their promises to the electorate 
demonstrate very well the lack of unanimity among politicians and economists alike regarding the effects of government policy on the economy. Many of these problems boil down to confusing the effects of political manipulation of the economy with economics proper. Development economics, macroeconomics and international trade are meaningless distinctions once the disruptive effects of political interference are stripped away. Yet the point is seldom made. It is as though politics were somehow inescapably tied up with economics, and although this is in practice the case today in the highly politicised and bureaucratically manipulated economies of the Western world, and perhaps has been throughout much of history, it is certainly not valid to infer from such historical facts that political considerations are necessarily relevant to economics proper. The failure to maintain a clear distinction between economic and political principles when dealing with economies operating under the controlling influence of political strategies and goals that are essentially irrational from the economic point of view has led to much confusion and misunderstanding. Perhaps it would be far better to abandon the distinctions between the types of economic disciplines discussed above altogether, therefore, and concentrate on the basic distinction between economics proper, that is, the study and use of management of scarce resources with alternative uses, and political economy, that is to say, the study of how economies are affected by the constraints imposed upon them by the organisation of society under particular political regimes. This distinction would help to keep the essentially economic from the essentially non-economic factors more clearly in view. It would also help us to see the remedies for many of the problems facing both first and third world societies and different income groups within those societies more clearly in terms of rational economic principles or at least to understand why such problems are unresolvable in the context of prevailing political conditions. The study of both economics and politics would be considerably more rational under such a procedure. 